This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Welcome back. Afternoons on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. 403-974-TALK is our number, 974-8255. You can call us up. You can text us. Same number. It was August 31st, 1984, that Canadian television and really Canadian music changed. It was the launch of Much Music. Interestingly, as I was reading, there were actually a, a few different applications at the time to the CRTC to, to have licensed music stations, basically, playing music videos. Music videos were still fairly new at that point. This is right on the heels of MTV launching in the United States. So it was uh, Moses Zneimer, Chum City TV, that got the go-ahead from the CRTC, and as mentioned, August 31st, 1984, is when Much Music launched. And it proved to be hugely influential. Not just changing Canadian television, but having a huge impact, as mentioned, uh, on Canadian music. And, and I think really helping launch the careers uh, of a number of, of well-known Canadian artists. So it was quite a time. Obviously, uh, the music industry and the television industry were a lot different in, in 1984. But it certainly had an impact. Somebody there who was there at the beginning, who was a part of it all has written a new book sharing some of the stories of uh, what it was like, the launch of Much Music, uh, and the impact that it had. The book is called Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music, the nation's music station. Christopher Ward joins us on the line here this afternoon. Christopher, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I know as part of this project, there's also a, a video hub set up at the Much website, much.com, and it must be weird to go back and look at some of these interviews in the 80s and early 90s, some of the biggest names in music at the time. You know what? It was actually a lot of fun. I spent a couple of months in the basement at 299 Queen Street in Toronto and just sort of relived a decade of great m- memories of music and interviews and everything. And it, it was it was wild. I think that was the right word when I looked back at it. It was very raw, seat-of-the-pants, fresh daily kind of experience. I'm sure these stories, I mean, they, they stick with you, and I'm sure you've told a lot of these stories a, a thousand times. But in, in terms of sitting down and, and writing all of this out and sharing these memories, what, what was it for you that, that convinced you that now was the time to do this or that you wanted to do this? Well, you know, I stayed friends with so many of the people that I worked with there. We would get together periodically and, of course, you know, tell the war stories as, as we always do. Um, and I had a moment where I thought, you know, there's a risk of all of this being lost, you know, just being a few old YouTube clips and that would be it. And I thought that it was a really rich time, not only in our lives and in the lives of the artists that we talked about, but also in the country and in the music business and, and in television, I just didn't want to lose it. So I thought, okay, let's go down to the basement, see what's there, and then see if there's something that I could turn into a book. So you were the first VJ, right? It was J.D. Roberts and myself, who's now John Roberts on Fox News. Oh, yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... How how did it come to be then? Did did you know that this was launching? It was something you wanted to do, and you applied for this. Did someone reach out to you? How did how did it all happen? Um, I had no interest whatsoever in doing it. <laughs> um, I, I was actually um, a songwriter, and and I was working with a, a young unknown artist by the name of Alana Miles and developing her career. 
Well, that took a little longer than we expected. And an old friend of mine, John Martin, who worked at uh, City TV and who was responsible for producing the new music, which started back in 79, came to me and said, look, we're, we're doing this thing. It's kind of a prototype for a music channel. We want to pitch it at the CRTC. It's an all-night show, two nights a week. Do you want to host it? I said, nah, I don't think so. He said, Christopher, he said, you need the money, don't you? I'm like, mm, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, you can do anything you want. So with the idea of a kind of a television sandbox and, yes, a check on a regular basis, I launched into my new career as a TV host. And um, so when we got the license for much, uh, it was J.D. who had been on uh, the new music and myself who were chosen to, to be the first ones through the door. And so what, what was like your mandate? Was it just, just kind of a, a wild free-for-all or what, how did they envision this? Well, there'd already been a music channel, as you mentioned, with MTV in the States, but it was very sort of stiff by contrast. All the uh, intros were written out and rehearsed, and they delivered them all in a row to tape, and then somebody would package the show later, partly because of budget. I mean, we had no real studio. What we had was the area where we worked with the camera people and the producers and directors and lighting people all running around in the background and, and the din of phones ringing constantly. And then um, we did live. And, and, you know, it's like anything else, like live radio. Once you do it, it's done. And then you wake up tomorrow and you do it again. And that's certainly a cost-effective way to do it. But it also leads to a lot of random behavior. And they hired in a very adventurous way. I mean, you think of some of the people that were on air back then, guys like Steve Anthony and Master T and uh -huh. Mike Williams. I mean, a lot of people had backgrounds as, as actors, comedians, musicians. We weren't all just, you know, broadcast types. And I think we brought that, that sense of fun to the, to the job. Well, look, I mean, you know, under the CRTC, there, there's a need to be Canadian. Um, but I think at the same time, there was a sense that, well, let's actually be Canadian. Let's create something that, that's going to resonate with Canadians and be meaningful in a Canadian sense. So how did you come at it that way? Well, I, there's chickens and eggs, but I think there was a tremendous creative explosion going on in Canadian music. We've been kind of like a rock nation before that. And I think with the 80s, there was this huge diversity as bands like The Spoons and Martha and the Muffins and the Parachute Club. And, um, you know, bands like that came up and really changed the face of Canadian music. And a lot of these bands were very visual. I mean, you look at artists like Corey Hart or, or Platinum Blonde and Glass Tiger. I mean, they had a very, very sort of telegenic look. So they arrived just at the right time that we arrived. And I felt like there was almost like a partnership. I mean, we didn't, you know, wasn't like Canadian content was being forced on us. They were our pals, and, and we wanted to be part of their story. So that, that was sort of the attitude that we brought to it. And did the, the artists themselves, did the Canadian musicians realize pretty quickly the, the power, the potential power of this? Oh, yeah. Okay. As did the record as did the record company. Sure. So they had to so decide to loosen the... You know, the purse strings. I mean, they weren't spending like Michael Jackson kind of money or Peter Gabriel money to make videos, but they were spending a lot of dough, relatively speaking, uh, to try to, you know, create an image for these bands. But the opportunity was fantastic because 
like I played in bands in the 70s and made records. I was signed to Warner Brothers. And I remember what a slog it was trying to, you know, like develop an audience across the country. You'd have to build relationships with, you know, individual radio stations. You'd have to go out and play clubs in each city and town in order to get an audience built. And it took years to do that. Whereas on Much, somebody came up with a video and they walked in the door and we were very open-minded to unknown bands. And we put that video in rotation. It was like being on a national radio station and they had an identity, a visual identity and a musical one overnight. The, the classic example, I think, is The Pursuit of Happiness a band originally out of Edmonton, and they had a video for a song called I'm an Adult Now, which they shot on the streets of Toronto. For oh, yes. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and they brought it in, and we loved it. So we played it, and <laughs> instantly they had a career, and they got a record deal as a result with a U.S. label. Huh. Well, Christmas, so I, I yeah. know we made a difference, and, and that of that I'm, I'm really uh, very proud Absolutely. Stand by for a second, and we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back a few more minutes with Christopher Ward talking about the new book, Is This Live? Inside the Wild Early Years of Much Music, the nation's music station. Forward, by the way, by none other than Mike Myers. Uh, there's also more at much.com. they got a video hub set up with some of the, these old interviews, some of the big names that came through Much Music over the years. There's David Bowie in there. There's Madonna in there. Paul McCartney. Pretty crazy. We're back with more right after this. Uh, welcome back. Talking about the early days of Much Music. Somebody was there at the beginning, one of the original VJs, Christopher War, talking about his new book, Is This Live? You know, and you must hear it all the time, Christopher. I mean, you know, for, for folks like us growing up and in our childhood, that, it, I mean, it was, it was such a, an important piece of our lives. I had stacks of VHS tapes. So I would record <laughs> music videos on much music and and that was like you know the mixtape of our childhood yeah i mean when i was a kid we'd sit around and listen to 45s you know and then people sat around and watched much music after school and after work and it was on just all the time like kind of video wallpaper i mean now my daughter and her friends sit and you know watch wacky videos on youtube but um yeah, it was like a kind of a gathering place for people. And I think also for kids, you know, who maybe weren't in big cities and stuff, it gave them a lot of good ideas about fashion and just trends culturally, you know, so they could really keep up. I think it was good for that, too. Yeah, although, I don't know, fashion in 1984, it's maybe best forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, there's a couple of pictures of me with Gowan that maybe, you know, I don't know, some, some wacky hair and pretty odd shoulder pads and things going on. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and for you, I mean, you had an opportunity to, to interview, to meet some some huge names in the industry. So, I mean, what are the interviews that stand out to you? You know, when George Harrison walked into Much Music, one of the directors said it was like church. Um, we, were, we were awestruck. And, and how not to be. I mean, I'd grown up listening to the Beatles. That was the first song I played on my guitar. It's the reason I wanted to be a songwriter. And there were other artists, mostly the older artists for me personally, because you, you relate to the people that you grew up with. Like Leonard Cohen, I, I was so nervous the day he showed up in the studio, and he couldn't have been more gracious. Tina Turner was fantastic. She walked in the room, and it just glowed. And there's there's tons of great photographs of all of this stuff in the in the book. I should mention too. What about but the interviews? They, that, yeah. yeah. 
Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, um, some interviews tend to be better than others, and, and I can appreciate that as, as a host of a show. But um, and I was reading, for example, there was an interview with Platinum Blonde that you felt maybe didn't go so well. <laughs> yes, I think nightmare would be the word, and, and it was a nightmare for them as well. I, it was very early on for me, and I really hadn't by any means mastered the art of doing a good interview, and I didn't know how to move things along. And it was late at night, and my boss came in from being out in the clubs in, uh, on Queen Street and uh, sat down in the studio and in the middle of the interview yelled, <laughs> repeatedly until we just had to shut the interview down. And, um, you know, he was right. <laughs> it was boring. Mark Holmes of, of Flatten and Blonde and I, I saw him a few weeks ago. We laughed once again. We would both look at each other and we'd go, boring. <laughs> so it's like... It's one of those things that's never forgotten. But there were other bad interviews for different reasons. I mean, like I interviewed Motorhead, the heavy metal band, and, and at the end of the interview, while they, they'd been sitting there co-hosting for an hour with a 26er of Jack Daniels and under each chair, <laughs> and by the end of it, we had this life-size poster to give away. And uh, they decided, while I was giving it away, that they would eat the poster live on, on air. So, you know, but uh, those, those unpredictable things kind of make it fun. There's so many great stories that I collected. I mean, that was really what this was about, was, was finding all the photos, collecting all the great stories, and then interviewing all of the artists who were huge at the time. And so many of them brought, like, a really bemused perspective on it, like Brian Adams. He said, oh, yeah, the, you know, the plot of a Brian Adams video was typically girl drives car. Brian gets in car, <laughs> girls, leaves Brian at roadside, Brian stares into distance. <laughs> like that would be a treatment for a video. Um, and, you know, like people like Mike Reno of Loverboy, certainly one of the funniest guys in rock and roll, as you probably know. They just, they just bring such a great perspective looking back on something that's like 25 years ago. But for so many of these artists... It was a huge time. It was a you know really important point in their careers. I mean, Jan Arden said literally, she said, the day you guys played my video, I couldn't go to the grocery store without people wanting to talk to me. Oh, yeah, no kidding. And she said it changed overnight for so many artists. Well, as he says, I mean, we, we got YouTube today. I mean, mu the music industry is different. The television industry is different. Uh, is, mm -hmm. is it hard, do you think, then, for, for young people, young people today, to, to understand and appreciate what it was like at that time well i think if they you know if they read the book obviously I'm, i mean i i tried to chronicle it in a way that you know it's an affectionate sort of love letter to a certain time in in musical history and that would give them an idea of of what it was like but also if they look at the clips on the on the much site uh, you can just tell how loose it is i mean all of this you think about it was pre-internet so yeah. I mean, I, I wish I'd had the Internet for research, but I didn't, you know. I mean, we literally had a big metal filing cabinet, and that's where you did all of your research for the for the interview coming up the following day. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's I guess it's a testament to, to the people behind it, because this is a, you know, was a different company then. It's owned by a different company now, but but all of this stuff mm -hmm. has, has survived. Yeah, the archives are actually way more extensive than I thought, and I was so grateful. I, I really... Going in, I was kind of nervous. I thought, gee, I wonder how much of this stuff's going to still exist or how many of these tapes will have just disintegrated into <laughs> dust. 
But in fact, the archives are really intact. There's there's so much great, great material in there. And it's funny because I talked to the librarians and while I was down there researching and they said, oh, yeah, every time somebody dies, we get the call. And then, boom, they're having to sort of rake through all this material and, and, and find, um, you know, all these great moments that exist. Well, the book is called Is This Live? And uh, people can see some of those interviews. Uh, there's a, a hub set up at much.com. Uh, Christopher Work, congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, take care. There you go. Christopher Ward's original VJ. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Him and J.D. Roberts, who, as he mentioned, is now John Roberts on Fox News. And you look at some of the different career paths of, of the different people who are VJs over the year. But you know what? And the thing is, I mean, much music still exists. The MMVAs are still a big deal each year. And I mean, as part of their mandate, they still have to play music videos, although they seem to be few and far between. But it's really nothing like it was, right? And so I think if you were a child, certainly in the 80s or even in, into the 90s, I think you understand and you know what, what much music meant. And that's where you went to find new music and new artists. And yeah, as much as I had, you know, cassette tapes, I'd record songs off the radio, we all recorded videos off much music. Even the uh, Fish Heads video, someone texted. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, do I remember that one. The Fish Heads, the roly-poly Fish Heads. Where is that? Let's see if I can. Someone dared me to play this. The whole video is like nothing. There we go. Who remembers that? Oh my God. Anyway, we got to take a break here. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.